Welcome to the HPG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back as we uh, go from 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians on the podcast today. Uh, we've been overviewing letters in the New Testament and these are two of the longest ones. Uh, Paul spent a lot of time in the city of Corinth mm-hmm. with these brethren. He loved them a lot, uh, despite a lot of problems that we talked about in First Corinthians last week and Paul's uh, need to correct them. So we uh, will look today at this second letter that we have, which is actually, um, we know that there were, were several Corinthian letters, some of which we don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned last week briefly that there was at least one letter before 1 Corinthians. Uh, and we might mention today that there's potentially a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, or some debate over that, that we'll see in chapter 2 of this letter. But either way, what we have with these New Testament letters is we have everything that we need. God has preserved all the letters that we have. But it is interesting to realize that we are reading parts of a larger conversation sometimes. And uh, even when we don't know what the other half of that conversation was, you can sometimes tell what it is based on what Paul's writing in response to them. And so one of the things we're going to want to kind of look for as we go through is what problems does it seem like Corinth has solved? Because one of the things we learned from 1 Corinthians is they had a lot of issues, a lot of problems. Uh, it started with you know them having these divisions among themselves regarding the speakers and teachers or the different people who baptized them, and Paul has to set them straight about that. Um, the other thing that was big was that they were relying on and being impressed by the wisdom of the world. Um, and both of those ideas, the divisions and the wisdom of the world, seem like some ideas that Paul circles back to in the letter. But as for the suing each other, the sexual morality, some of them sleeping with prostitutes, um, the arrogance and puffed up nature, it seems like there are a lot of things that they did repent of and have done better on. And so it's kind of fun to kind of explore those things and see the progress that the Corinthian church had as we get into the letter. Yeah. So one of the interesting things we'll see this letter, we know that 1 Corinthians was written from Ephesus on the third missionary journey. And 2 Corinthians is written from Macedonia, because Paul's going to review his journey in chapter 1, and then later he'll finish the story in chapter 7, about him really wanting to hear from the Corinthians, that he had sent Titus, his co-worker and fellow evangelist, ahead of him to see how the Corinthians were doing, and in some ways probably how they received 1 Corinthians. And, of course, in those days, they don't have quick communication. And so Paul has been waiting for, I don't know, weeks or months for Titus to return. And we'll talk about this a little more as we get into the letter. But the short version is 2 Corinthians is an emotional letter because Paul has been waiting for a long time to get news about how they're doing. And thank God it's good news. Mm -hmm. But if you've ever sent an email or sent a letter off and had to just wait and wait and wait for a response and you really made yourself vulnerable in the message and you're like how are they responding oh did I say the right thing and sometimes it's you know you had to come down hard on somebody and tell them how it is and 
you're waiting and oh, it's just agonizing. And so I think the background of this letter, it's helpful to see Paul kind of having to, he's had to agonize over mm-hmm. these brethren. Um, and now he's finally gotten good news. And one of the other things we learned uh, back toward chapter 13 and verse 1, Paul was planning another visit. Um, he was going to be coming again to them to talk to them about some of these same things. And Paul doesn't want to have to come to them with the hammer. Uh, he wants to come with them with a hug. <laughs> and this letter is going to be kind of his hammer for him. Before I get there, please straighten these things out. Please make some of these corrections so that when I come, it is an enjoyable trip. Um, and so that, uh, you know, he doesn't just have to be harping on them about stuff the whole time, but be an encouraging visit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, though he has a good bit of the hug in here, too. Yes, he does. parts of it. Yeah. Uh, there's kind of a combination. So some things to watch for in Second Corinthians. One is the theme of comfort, uh, particularly in chapter 1, but also in chapter 7, that uh, Paul has been comforted by the good report that Titus brought, and that's a theme in the letter. Um, Paul is going to be very affectionate in this letter. Um, even though sometimes you're like, is this the same church as in First Corinthians? Because <laughs> like, mm-hmm. he was kind of smacking him around in First Corinthians um, in a loving way, but he was really telling him how it is. And in Second Corinthians, he's going to be very demonstrative with his love for them. So that's throughout. And the last part of Second Corinthians, though, he does change his tone a bit because he really does have to crank down on false teachers yes. and how they've been undermining his uh, reputation and his working with them. And so chapters 10 through 12, just watch for that. There's, there's other things sprinkled throughout about the false teachers, but especially at the end of this letter, he really has to, um, he doesn't pull any punches with uh, comparing himself to the false teachers um, so that they really, he can reestablish his relationship with them because he loves them so much. Yes, and so there's a lot of good lessons to learn as you go through Second Corinthians. Um, one of the big things to look out for, just another theme, that gospel work is not a job. It's about genuinely loving people. That, and that, that's something Paul needs to stress to them. He, in First Corinthians, was not just on a power trip or any visit that occurred after he wrote First Corinthians. It, was just not, it wasn't him just trying to be mean or show that he's in charge or that he has some kind of authority. Um, but it was simply him showing them his love by being concerned for them. And so that's something he's really going to try and communicate well in this letter, like Stephen said. Mm-hmm. So the, the letter uh, to Corinth, the second one, breaks into three big chunks. Um, the first big chunk is chapters 1 through 7, where Paul is going to talk about his uh, plans to visit them and his change of plans, but also his service to them as an apostle and his love for them. Uh, Chapters 8 and 9 are the second big chunk where he's going to write to them uh, expanding on what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 16 about the collection that he's coming to uh, get from them and take to the needy Christians in Jerusalem. And then chapters 10 through 13 is the third big chunk where Paul focuses in on rebuking them for listening to these false teachers and kind of comparing himself to them and showing, you know, I have more credibility than these false teachers, and you need to stop listening to them and start listening to me again. So within those three chunks, Second Corinthians is a little harder to outline because it's more of an emotional letter. It's kind of back and forth between a lot of themes. But in chapter 1, um, uh, verse 1 down through chapter 2, verse 13, well, Paul's going to begin, as he often does, uh, kind of talking about uh, you know, his situation, his plans to visit them. And so in Second Corinthians 1, he opens up with this message of comfort. 
And uh, actually, the word comfort is used something like 11 times in the first few verses, (laughs) verses 3 through seven. uh, 7. And he talks about uh, he was in a terrible situation um, in Asia, and he doesn't specify what that was. I mean, this was apparently during his time at Ephesus uh, or in the surrounding area. Ephesus was the capital of Asia, if I remember correctly. And um, something terrible happened to him there, so much so that he thought he was going to die. Yeah. And God comforted him in that situation. But he points out that the comfort he received from God is not just for himself, but to share with other people. I've, I've heard it put this way. God comforts us not to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. And I think that's a really helpful summary of kind of this first section of 2 Corinthians. And it ties really well with 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul had talked about the hope and the assurance of the resurrection. Uh, And in the same point in verse 10 of chapter 1, or in verse 9, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Um, God is the one that raises the dead. Uh, Our hope is in that, and God is a great deliverer because of it. Yeah, amen. So the, the next little chunk is Paul apparently was being criticized mm-hmm. by these false teachers because he had to change his plans. His original itinerary, apparently, on his third journey was after he left Ephesus, he hoped to go, apparently, sail straight all across to Corinth first and then go up through Macedonia collecting um, funds for the, the Christians in Jerusalem. But he had to change his plans. And in part because of how the Corinthians were doing. Um, But the false teachers seized on that and were tearing Paul down, saying, oh, you can't trust Paul. He's yesterday, no tomorrow. You just never know if he's going to be a man of his word. And so Paul has to really say, hey, listen, it was actually to spare you that I changed my plans. I didn't want to come to you with, you know, in a harsh way. Uh, So I wrote you this hard letter. Uh, so hopefully that would straighten you up, and I want to give you some time to repent, basically, mm-hmm. so that when I come, it'll be with a hug and not a hammer, like you said earlier. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he also, kind of his statement of, of writing is in this section, verse 13, for we write nothing else to you uh, than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Yeah, he really um, loves these brethren. Yeah, he does. So he defends his change of plans in this section. And um, again, at the end of chapter 1, verse 23, he says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Um, In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. And it's in this section that he mentions uh, a tearful letter. Um, In chapter 2, verse 3, We're not sure if this is 1 Corinthians or perhaps another letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, but he says this about the letter. Chapter 2, verse 3, And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Mm -hmm. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Um, so whether this is 1 Corinthians or another painful letter, uh, it was something that's hard for Paul to write, and it's 
what has given him such anxiety waiting for their response to this tearful letter Mm -hmm. and why he sent Titus. So we'll talk more about that later. But in this section, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, there's a little paragraph about forgiveness that's really important. Paul apparently had to help the church there discipline someone. We don't know the details if this was the same guy who had his father's wife from 1 Corinthians 5. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But either way, Paul gives them the opportunity and says, listen, this guy's repented. You need to reaffirm your love for this guy because if you don't, Satan could get him with too much sorrow. You know, the discipline has taken effect. It's helped him repent, and now you need to reach out to him and show your love for him. Yeah, and that's that's really vital. Um, we want our brethren to feel and know that they are forgiven, and Paul is worried that an overcorrection of sorts has happened here. And so there's some really good lessons for us about um, how to forgive a brother. Um, my mind goes to the story of the prodigal son as well, where the father is so gracious and receives him, uh, whereas the older brother, he's refusing to forgive. He's refusing to celebrate and his younger brother coming back to the father. That story's in Luke 15, if you want to take a look at that. Um, but as Christians, we are to, with open arms, receive our brethren back and be excited that they came back. And that's what Paul is explaining here, that if we're not careful, there's an overcorrection that can happen. Yeah, that's a great comparison of the prodigal son. I hadn't thought about that. That's good. So one interesting feature of Second Corinthians is this weird shift that happens. Yeah, it's almost like it feels like a tangent. And it's going to happen for several chapters. Yeah. So if you're reading in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13, he's telling the story. And he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And he, and he stops right there. Yeah. And he does not pick up the story until chapter 7, verse 4. Uh, set verse 5, excuse me. Um, but when you pick up in 7-5, it's like nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> in 7-5, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So that's just kind of an interesting thing about this letter, is Paul starts this story and then has a long aside about his ministry, about how he worked with the Corinthians, how much he loves them, several different cool images that he uses about how his work is pictured as yeah. an evangelist and yes. as an apostle. Yes, and he, he's thanksgiving to God in this section, um, that, that God allowed him to work in this way, and that God gives joy to Paul as a, even as a prisoner of war. Uh, there are things that Paul can rejoice in. And so he, he, he loves these brethren, he loves the work that he gets to do, and these are really the chapters where you see this... Um, this peek into the heart of Paul as a gospel servant. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think, you know, we see Paul's heart in so many of his letters. We learn about his attitude and working with people. But almost nowhere is it clearer than in Second Corinthians mm-hmm. chapters, you know, 3 through 6 or so uh, into chapter 7. 
where he just pulls back the curtain of his heart and is like, hey guys, here's how I think about you. Here's how I get through all the hard things that I have to go through as an apostle. I'm suffering for you. And here's what keeps me ticking all through the hardship and the suffering and the sorrow. And so it just, one of the most valuable things I think about Second Corinthians, just for me personally, is seeing the kind of heart we ought to have for souls and for the kingdom of Jesus. It's just a beautiful thing to see Paul's attitude here. And the other thing Paul is going to be doing in this section, just by extension, is he is so far better than the false teachers that they're surrounding themselves with and that they are surrounded with. Um, You really see that in verse 17 of chapter 2. For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but it's from sincerity. But as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Um, Paul is not going to sell out the truth for money like some of these people are. Paul is sincerely preaching the gospel, and that should be our motivation as well. Um, It's not for any kind of financial or other kind of monetary gain, but for the fact that we love God and we love people and we want this message to get out. Uh, The the false teachers they're surrounding themselves with, it seems like, don't have the right purpose. Yeah, and, and so watch for that kind of throughout the letter. Again, he'll get to his big defense against the false teachers in chapters 10 through 12, but he'll just drop little hints like that. We're not like these other people. Um, and so Paul, in showing his sincerity, is also contrasting himself with these false teachers. So at the end of chapter 2, there's going to be several really cool images. Um, one is this aroma at the end of chapter 2. There's not a lot of smell uh analogies in the New Testament, but this is one of them. And it likely comes from the idea of a a victory parade that they would have known in the Roman world where after uh, the army has conquered, they come back to the the city and there would be all sorts of different aromas associated with that victory parade. And for the prisoners, it's death. (laughs) Uh, But for the victors, it's life and, you know, riches and honor. And so he talks about that the aroma of Jesus is kind of both of those things. Uh, he says in chapter 2, um, verse 14, But thanks be to God, to who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, so that and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Yeah, It's a really cool... Yeah, mental picture. It's cool. Uh, the New King James Version there in verse 14, instead of the word manifest, it says that he and he diffuses through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. And just the idea of a diffuser, I think, makes it a little more vivid in my mind, at least. That so you're saying Jesus is the essential oil of life. That's right. And we, But the point is, as we go out into the world and are around each other, who or what are we diffusing? Are we diffusing the, the aroma of Christ or of something or someone else? Yeah. So in chapter 3 and going into chapter 4, it's a very interesting section where Paul is talking about being a servant or a minister of the new covenant versus the old covenant. It may have been that some of these false teachers were Judaizers, and that's part of the reason for this. But he has several interesting images, light and dark, life and death, uh, in this section to contrast the old law. He talks about being written on stone versus being written on human hearts. But the end of... 2 Corinthians 3 is this really interesting reflection on Moses coming down Mount Sinai with the law and his face shining, but he had a veil on. And so they couldn't look at his face versus 
we don't have to wear a veil. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can see the face of God through Jesus, really, in the face of Christ. And there's some beautiful, beautiful pictures comparing and contrasting the law of Moses to the new covenant that comes through Jesus. And that spills over into chapter 4, where he talks about people uh, who read the gospel or read the scriptures without understanding Christ. It's like a veil is over their hearts, Mm. and the God of this world has blinded them. And so you see some of that same veil, light and dark imagery spilling over into chapter 4. But uh, I love what he says in 4 verse 6, summing up this section. He said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, or let there be light, Mm -hmm. has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's our goal with the gospel, is to say, let there be light to the world. God, through us, working to give light and create a new new world in people. And that really speaks to Paul's ministry. Um, one of the things Paul has pointed out is he doesn't come in impressive speech, um, but he comes with a sincere heart. You know, he, He's not here to impress anyone because the gospel does that by itself. And that's a really important lesson for us to learn that in our talking to people in the world, or if you're someone that does stand before uh, a group of people and, and teach from the Bible, remember that you're not coming up with anything. This was all the a wonderful true story that occurred without your interference and so stand out of the way and let the gospel shine um, and that that stood in direct contrast to what these false teachers were doing who were making it about themselves um, the gospel is what Paul put forth to the brethren and that's what they need to uphold and so let that be a lesson to us as well as just the importance of letting the gospel shine forth in people's lives and our messages and not ourselves yeah amen so the rest of chapter 4 and really into chapter 5, Paul addresses the suffering that he was going through as an apostle because he went through a lot. He's going to get to the big list in chapter 11, kind of a famous list of all the different times he was beaten and uh, even once when he was stoned and left for dead. But in here in, in the middle, he talks about kind of his mindset and getting through that. And, and he talks about being like this jar of clay mm-hmm. <laughs> with a treasure inside mm-hmm. that, you know, he's, he's expendable. He, he's nothing, like you just said, you know, he, he's nothing fancy, but it's the treasure inside that is the valuable, beautiful thing. Yeah. And then he even talks about, or, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, you think through how true that is when Jesus's first picks were fishermen and a tax collector, <laughs> you know, yeah, they're just, yeah. they're imperfect people. Um, but their treasure is the gospel. That, that's what they do have. They might not be impressive, but the gift that we have is. Yes. And the other analogy he'll use in this section is that our bodies are like these temporary tents. Um, but we're looking forward to the resurrection body, Amen. an eternal house. And there's some beautiful truths about the resurrection in this section. And again, coming back, that's, that's the hope. Just like when he thought he was going to die in Asia, mm-hmm. but he's like, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's looking forward to an eternal house, an eternal body, um, that we don't know exactly what that's going to be like. Go back and see 1 Corinthians 15, the discussion there. But he's looking to the future. And I love uh, the end of chapter 4, just I think is a beautiful summary of this section. In 4, verse 16, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a great perspective that's going to get you through the most difficult of things on this side. To say, you know, all this affliction, it's light and it's momentary. Yeah. But the glory that's coming is eternal and weighty. And that's how we do it. We're, we're not looking at things that are seen. We're looking to the things that are not seen. And that gets us through all the stuff that we have to suffer. Yeah. And chapter 5, verse 2. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And that's our focus. That's where we want to go. That's where we want to be. And so this would be a huge encouragement. And again, we're kind of in a tangent of sorts. We'll get back to kind of what Paul's whole purpose of this is. But this is so important to this culture and to these people to realize that there is hope in the Lord and that this is what we can be looking forward to and anticipating when there are so many things around us that are falling apart. Mm-hmm. So at the end of chapter 5 and in the little first little bit of chapter 6, he talks about being ministers or servants um, with a message of reconciliation, mm-hmm. of bringing people back together, or specifically bringing people back into relationship with God. Yeah. And sums up just how beautiful the message is uh, that they've been given. I like 5.14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so he talks about, we're spreading the love of Christ. Yeah. Like, please listen. And he kind of pleads with the Corinthians at the beginning of chapter 6, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of pleading with them, uh, trying to get them to not walk away from Christ right. because of the false teaching that they're dealing with. And he calls uh, himself in verse 20 of chapter 5 an ambassador for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Uh, but that idea of Paul being an ambassador of Christ, and we ourselves to people can be an ambassador of Christ, is cool to think about. Mm-hmm. That we're from a foreign land, far right. as foreign to this world, but we represent a kingdom, and we're trying to bring people into allegiance to the king and to receive his blessings and his life. So the end of chapter 6 and into chapter 7, as we wrap up this long tangent that Paul's made, um, also has an interesting kind of sting here at the end. Um, Paul gets very straightforward with them after really opening his heart up and saying, look at what we've suffered for you in chapter 6. He then kind of very suddenly comes out in 6.14 with a scathing rebuke. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What yeah. partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And he uses lots of analogies, but the center one is you're supposed to be a temple. You're supposed to be a dwelling place for God. And he, he used that same argument in 1 Corinthians 6 and talking about sexual morality. Your body is a temple. Yeah. But here he refers to all of them together. You collectively are supposed to be a temple. Why are you yoking yourself to these really unbelievers, these lawless people, whether this is uh, the false teachers or whether it's other people in Corinth? He's saying you can't mix God's holy temple 
with things that are darkness and lawlessness. And so in chapter 7, verse 1, he'll say, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I think this really gets to the root of what Paul wanted to talk to them about, like Stephen said. But the way I've heard it put is he first, before they would listen to him, he had to remove some obstacles that they themselves had put there, but also that some of these false teachers had put. And so once those obstacles have been removed, Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 6, Now in a like exchange I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Paul has poured his heart out to them. He wants them to do likewise and be willing to listen to the correction that he and the other apostles have for them. And so uh, that's why I think there is an abrupt shift, it feels like, because really it was the perfect moment for Paul to then insert what's really important, and that is cleansing themselves, repenting, and perfecting holiness. And so as Paul has just revealed his heart and is bringing this fervent plea to them, um, he comes right back to where he started (laughs) Um, in chapter 2, verse 13, and then 7, verse 5, again, just picks right back up with the story (laughs) and uh, talks about finding Titus. And he's so, so relieved that they repented. And he talks about his own feeling when he sent that letter. Uh, He says in chapter 7, verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Mm -hmm. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And then he's this beautiful discussion about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And that the Christians in Corinth experienced a godly kind of sorrow that led them to repent. And this, I think, is really the, at the heart of what Jesus said. Where he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a great section to talk about when you're looking at the Beatitudes and saying, what does mourning, godly mourning, godly sorrow, really look like? And so uh, he concludes the first big chunk of the book by saying, I'm so glad that that letter had its effect Mm -hmm. um, and that you repented. And he's thankful that Titus was able to have a hand in that, and uh, he wants them to also be thankful for Titus in the process at the end of chapter 7. Speaking about Titus in verse 14, for if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. And so uh, one of the things I think we forget is Paul isn't a lone ranger. Paul had a lot of helpers. Uh, Titus, Timothy was mentioned at the end of 1 Corinthians. Silvanus, uh, so, so many people have their hand in helping out this church, and they need to be thankful for those people. Yes. So that ends kind of the first big chunk of 2 Corinthians. And in chapters 8 and 9, again, this is kind of expanding on 1 Corinthians 16 and the instructions he gave about the collection. But what's one of the interesting things about this section is Paul's going to talk a lot about money, but he's not going to at least directly say the word money in like all this. It's impressive. He can spend an entire two chapters about money without saying the word. It's almost like a game. Like could you could <laughs> yeah. you do that? Like spend the next hour talking about money without saying that word. Yeah, he'll use a lot of other ways. That he it's very clear that he's talking about financial things in these chapters. But I love that really what Paul's doing here is he's encouraging them to give money. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
but really he's encouraging them to participate in the gospel. Yeah. And he's got a number of ways he's going to do that. Um, the, the very first way is he references the churches of Macedonia, and it's a really positive example. Uh, one of the things Paul says about them in verse 4 is that the Macedonian brethren were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. It's not like Paul had to go to them and be like, hey, you, I really need you guys to give. It says that they were begging them for the favor of participation in the gospel. And so uh, Paul will use them as an example, and he will say, I actually have confidence in you that you will do the same thing. And this is a really cool section where Paul, in verse 8, specifies that he doesn't speak this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Paul doesn't appeal to his ability to command them um, in this section, but he appeals to love. And the first sense of love he appeals to is the love of Jesus Christ in verse 9, that because of his grace, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And so you can see how that would be vital for us to understand when we're having a hard time giving, um, that we, we should also want to, to give out of even maybe our, our own poverty because we have been so rich at different times. And so Paul uh, will, will kind of bring it full circle at the end of chapter 8 by not only mentioning the love of Christ, um, but also that we all have a collected amount of money that the Lord gives us for the purpose of sharing, and that there might be equality. Um, because in this moment, it's these Jerusalem brethren that need help, and the Corinthians and Macedonians are helping out. But there very well might come a point where it's the Corinthians that need the help, and it's going to be the Jerusalem brethren that are going to have to chip in and help. And so Paul has a discussion about that there toward the end, or uh, sorry, um, in chapter 8, um, verses 9 through 15. Um, the, the other thing Paul does at the end of chapter 8 is he talks about some of the provisions that he took, or precautions, I should say, excuse me, for this collection. Um, it was likely a lot of money, wasn't it, Stephen? Yeah, we don't know exactly how much, but it would have been dangerous in the first century to just board a boat or travel around if people found out you're carrying a lot of money. I mean, it puts a target on your back. And the other thing that Paul's being careful about is just his own reputation. Um, Paul would leave Corinth with a certain amount of money, and how many people know that amount of money when he arrives in Jerusalem? You know, what if Paul was lying in his pockets a little bit? Right. Or what if Paul, people accused Paul of lining his pockets yeah. with this collection? And so one of the precautions he takes is there's at least three brothers that are mentioned as going with Paul with this collection who have are trustworthy, they've been approved. One is Titus in 8.15, or 16 rather. The other is a famous brother who ironically is not named. <laughs> they, they would have known who this was uh, there in verse 18. And the third is an earnest brother in verse 22 um, that they tested and found earnest. Um, and so Paul is very careful to be above board with finances, that it's not just one person overseeing this collection, but there's multiple people, there's checks, you know, um, which there's a lot of wisdom in that for individuals, for churches, and just to be careful mm -hmm. with financial matters because accusations can make things so sticky. And so Paul has thought very carefully ahead, and he's doing a fantastic job of uh, trying to be above board with this whole collection. And so in chapter 9, uh, he says, 
All right, so you, you all said you were going to do it, so I need you to do it. And I'm bringing some of the Macedonian brethren with me whenever I come through Corinth. And so he'll really say, don't, don't embarrass me or yourselves. Uh, you know, I've bragged to them about how giving you all are and how eager you were to do it. And so just know that I'm bringing some of those brethren with me. And so don't embarrass yourselves or me in the process. Uh, but he comes kind of full circle with it in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 9 by pointing out that God himself is a good giver and he loves a cheerful giver because uh, God is a cheerful giver. And so we should be as well. We should not give grudgingly. Um, he says in verse 7, each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Paul points out that any any sufficiency or any blessing we receive, instead of just thinking about it for ourselves, we need to think about it in terms of who does God want me to give this to? Who, who, God supplies us to be a cheerful giver, um, not just for ourselves, but to share with other people. Yeah. And that should really change the way we look at finances and several of the things that we have. That yeah. If I have an abundance, it's for the sake of giving. Yeah, amen. I don't think there's any longer discussion on financial matters than Second Corinthians 8 and 9 in the New Testament. Um, and so it just really gets to the heart of things, shows us the kind of attitude we ought to have when we give. So that gives way to the, the third big chunk of the book, which is chapters 10 through the end of the book, chapter 13. And this is where Paul is, again, kind of very suddenly changes his tone in chapter 10 and is like, all right, we need to get down to brass tacks. We need to talk about these false teachers. And Paul is going to over and over again in this section uh, contrast the tactics of his own teaching and ministry versus the tactics of the false teachers. And uh, one of the things he'll say, like in chapter 10, uh, verse 3, he'll say, For though we walk in, a, in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. He's going to talk about there's a fleshly way to fight, and then there's a spiritual way to fight. And this is one thing that's really difficult in Christian living, is there are times where we are called to war, and there's times where we have to work against other people who are teaching falsehood or have wrong motives. And there's earthly ways that we can do that, of just gossiping about people or slandering people, telling lies about them. There's worldly weapons that people use. But Paul is having to defend himself and his serving, but not with worldly tactics. And so we're going to see some very careful uh, tactics by Paul in this section to be very honest and above board. And one of the biggest defenses he has is his good character. He behaved so well when he was there among the Christians in Corinth, and they remember that. And so he's going to contrast several things uh, between him and the false teachers in this section. What's kind of interesting, he, he actually quotes some of the things some of those people were saying about him uh, in verse 10 of chapter 10. For they say... His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in words by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Uh, so you kind of see the attacks that people are hurling about Paul and about his character. But Paul is consistent. He's not hypocritical. And that's actually the opposite of what these false teachers are, which is some points that Paul has made earlier in the letter already. That They're actually the ones that are very hypocritical of nature. 
Um, but Paul is consistent. Um, and so th- that's the way we need to be as a gospel servant as well. Yeah. One of the challenging things about this section is that Paul is going to use some different ways of writing, to, I think, to get their attention. One thing Paul's going to do in this section is speak pretty sarcastically sometimes. <laughs> um, in chapter 11, verse 7, for instance, he'll say, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. Mm. So Paul brings up the point that, hey, I work for free with you guys, and you should appreciate that. I robbed other churches. Again, not literally robbing them, but I took money from them and didn't take it from you. And so he kind of speaks with some tongue-in-cheek turns of phrase as he goes through this section. And one of the biggest ways that that's going to happen is in chapter 12, where he speaks of himself in third person to kind of distance himself from the vision that he was given. But the the last part of chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12 Paul talks uh, in the most detail of anywhere else about his suffering Mm -hmm. and about what he had to go through. And again, he's trying to say, listen, look what I've done for you, Corinthians. Look what I've been willing to suffer to bring the gospel to you. And you won't listen to me, (laughs) you know? And so he's using this as a way of appealing to them. Yeah. And you can tell Paul feels awkward doing it. He Mm -hmm. doesn't want to have to talk about all these things that he has suffered for the sake of being a preacher and apostle of Christ. But he realizes it's going to be necessary for them to hear this. And so it really is interesting, like in verse 16 of chapter 11, again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. And so he just kind of, kind of talks in circles because you can tell he doesn't want to do this. But uh, just kind of highlight some of the things he points out about his suffering. Uh, if you look at verse 23, um, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I'm more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received the from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. Um, And so those are the external things that Paul mentions. And it's like, would I have done this if it was wasn't necessary. Uh, would I have done this if I wasn't sincerely trying to serve the Lord and serve brethren? And obviously the answer is no, he wouldn't have done any of these things. And all these false teachers that are pulling this congregation away from Paul, they haven't went through a smidgen of these things. Um, and that, that's Paul's point here. And then he adds at the end in verse 28, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Exactly. Yeah. He, he loves these brethren so much. And in addition to his outward physical suffering, he is suffering on the inside as well as he really wants them to do well. And when they're not, as the Corinthians were not, um, he is really uh, worried for them constantly. And so in chapter 12, um, he shifts gears a little bit and, and is going to have to tell of one of the most incredible things. Apparently that's really ever happened to a human being. And it happened to him, apparently, 
but he distances himself and and talks about it in a kind of a confusing way where he says like, I, I know a guy <laughs> you know asking for a friend you know we do this uh, kind of thing now where he distances himself from the event by talking about himself in third person and Paul uh, talks about how he was caught up into the third heaven mm-hmm. he saw paradise he's like I can't even tell you what I saw it was so incredible words cannot convey what it was that God showed me. But the reason that he tells them this is so that they'll respect him uh, because they respected people who had these incredible visions or claimed to have incredible visions. But Paul, at the same time, says, because God gave me this incredible honor of having this heavenly vision, he also gave me a hardship to go with it, a thorn in the flesh, he says. And so he says, ultimately, the suffering that I go through is also to keep me from exalting myself because God has been so generous to me and given me such blessings that he knows I need some things to keep me with my head straight, and I need I need this. And in verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself, nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, uh, I took you in by deceit. Certainly, I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent uh, to you, have I? Paul's thorn in the flesh, all of these awful things that he is suffering, yes, he's doing it for Christ. By extension, he's doing it for these brethren. And they, they have got to learn to appreciate him and love and see that he is being spent for the sake of these brethren. Um, and they should love him for that. But instead, there's a distance between them, and Paul wants to mend that. Yeah. And so Paul's going to close out this letter by giving them some closing exhortations, uh, again, appealing to them. Uh, He will have a few final jabs at the false teachers as he compares his ministry to theirs. But he really wants to come to them in a way that is gentle. Um, Remember, 1 Corinthians is written from Ephesus, and now he's made his way through Macedonia. He's writing 2 Corinthians. And he, he's ready to, to visit. He, he's, he's getting closer. And he's like, please, guys, straighten out these final few things. You know, you responded well to the, to the earlier letter. Now respond well to this letter so that when I get there, uh, we can enjoy our time together. And it doesn't have to be a time of rebuke and me coming down on you. Yeah. And that's a fun visit to think about. Uh, to think about Paul seeing these brethren, giving them a hug after knowing that they've repented and done the right thing. And so Paul genuinely wants this trip to be enjoyable. And so uh, in chapter 13, and verse 11, he says, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted. Again, the theme here in Corinthians. Be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, it's kind of cool that Paul, he, he signs off here uh, with the, with the Trinity, with the Lord Jesus, with God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, Paul clearly wants good things for this church as he wants for all the churches. So this really is a, a cool way to see him wrap up this letter. Yeah. So hopefully, as you've overviewed these letters of First and Second Corinthians, you, you get a feel for how Paul is working with these churches and just how much he loves them, just what he's willing to go through for them, how he thinks about his work as a gospel servant, and such a great pattern for us. 
Um, I think there's a reason that God preserved these letters of this, uh, his servant, Paul, to, to teach us by Paul's example, not just by his words, but by his example about what it looks like to love people like Jesus did and to serve different churches in different places. Yep. Well, Lord willing, next week we're going to get into the book of Romans. Uh, it's a really cool book that touches on the gospel, but also what some of the applications of living out the gospel message is. So Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. Yeah. Thank you all for listening today. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. If you'd like to study a book like this or other questions that you have, reach out to us, 717-585-0949 or capitalcitychristians at gmail.com for other local studies or if you're somewhere else, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Check out uh, capitalcitychristians.com for more information. Thank you so much for listening.